Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. Hey everybody and welcome. This is Dr. John back with the latest emergency episode of the Evolved Caveman. And I say emergency because I believe there is a growing anger epidemic to go along with the virus pandemic that we're dealing with. And I have on the show with me today, Dr. Thomas de Blasi, and I'm thrilled to have him here with me. And I'm going to read a few stats about what I see as this growing anger problem, and then I'll bring on Thomas. Um, So as far as I can tell, there's a new enemy in the war on coronavirus, and that is the anger, fear, and irritability that follows after weeks of forced isolation. So let me give you an idea what I'm talking about. And the, stits, the statistics are a little bit thin because I was looking for increases in anger and domestic violence and only in the past two months. So this is all you know, somewhat anecdotal or somewhat from police statistics. So in Italy, the first lockdowns began around February 21st of 2020. Um, and they covered most of the province of Lodi and Lombardy and affected about 50,000 people. Since March 10th, Italy has been in a nationwide lockdown. So tensions seem to be beginning to rise And there was a video from a resident in Palermo recently, and he said, we don't have a single euro left, we won't last another week like this, and warned that revolution could break out if the government fails to provide more relief. And particularly in Italy's poorer southern regions, it seems that the initial resiliency that Italians showed in response to the outbreak is fraying, as residents bristle at the ongoing restrictions on their day-to-day life. So these scenes that we used to see of Italian singing from the balconies seem to be giving way to frustration and anger. And the situation in Italy has shown that one of the more important fronts in the battle against COVID-19 will be psychological, maintaining patience, compassion, peacefulness, and social order during this unprecedented time. So let me just do a couple more stats here. So in the United States and Fresno, California, domestic violence calls have increased as coronavirus continues to spread. The Fresno Sheriff's Office saw a large increase in domestic violence reports, 77% more reports in the week of March 16th to 22nd than March 9th to 15th. So that's week to week. Um, And they said that they increased, they attributed the increased violence due to spikes in individual stress, due to depression, fear, and financial uncertainty. In San Francisco, California, job loss by the coronavirus has made it even harder for some domestic violence victims to leave their abusers, which also increases stress and the likelihood of violence. So there's a growing concern nationwide about how to keep victims and survivors safe when they're forced to shelter in place with their abusers. And I cut out some of these stats, but in Montgomery County in Houston, they reported a 35% increase in domestic violence cases filed this month as compared to this month last year. In London, England, the Asian Women's Shelter has experienced a 33% increase in the number of calls since their shelter-in-place order. So these are some of the stats that I could gather, and I cut out about half of them just to save time. But it's critical to realize that children are also suffering in these circumstances because simply witnessing abuse can take the same toll on young people's mental health as actually being abused themselves. There's also evidence of an increase in, quote, pressure cooker cases where there has never been a history of violence previously. And people who have not shown violence in the past are suddenly put into a situation where numerous stressors are quickly piled one on top of the other, and they've got no tools to manage this stress. Unemployment, parenting, the new role of playing teacher for your children, rent, global stress, health concerns, financial worries, 
dreading an unknown future and nowhere to go to get a momentary break from people in the household. So self-isolation is important to fight the virus and it can be dangerous for those living with anger and abuse. So one thing is certain during a global crisis and during natural disasters, family violence increases. So services to support men who are using violent and controlling behavior or men who are on the receiving end of abuse need to be available at this time. And that is what we are doing here today on this show. Dr. Thomas de Blasi and I are going to be talking about anger, how to manage it, what we can do about it so that we can provide services to the men in some of these situations. All right, so let me bring along Tom and let me introduce him first. Thomas de Blasi is an assistant professor at St. Joseph's College where he teaches undergraduate students and researches anger, aggression, domestic violence, and revenge. He's given over 30 presentations locally, nationally, and internationally. In addition, he has 10 publications, mostly focusing on anger and aggression. He's a member of the American Psychological Association, National Anger Management Association, the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Providers, among other things. And he is currently working on research related to motivational interviewing, anger, revenge, and intimate partner violence. He's also currently working with clients at My OCD Care, and I will have links at the, in the show notes and at the end of the show if you would like to contact Thomas. Thomas, how are you doing? All right, John. Thank you for having me on today. I appreciate hey, everything you're doing here. Thank you for coming, and thank you for listening to that really long introduction. I, I don't normally <laughs> do that, but I, I think that we need a context for what's going on here. Yeah. Um, go ahead. What were some of your thoughts after, after hearing that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think kind of to your point, too, it's not really a surprise that the rates are skyrocketing right now. You know, I think given the fact that people are forced to be with somebody else, right, people aren't me meant for that, right? People aren't built to be uh, hibernating, right? I mean, just even by our nature, we're not built for that by any means. Um, we're social beings, you want to get out. I think one of the biggest things here is people feeling like they don't have a choice, right? And I think that's so important. Um, I think related to that is the idea that our choices are certainly limited, right? We went from being able to do maybe a hundred different things to maybe only 10 things. Mm -hmm. right? And I think though that those 10 things though are still really important. I still think we can pick from those 10 things, right? And even that means, right? Maybe you can't do your top 15 things now, right? But you could do number 16, 17, 18, right? You could still do something. I think recognizing we still have some choice in the matter, although I think it's a very hard pill to swallow, right? Is still really important. And I think when we recognize that choice and kind of allow ourselves to reframe, we have a much brighter outlook on everything that's happening right now. Yeah, I think the, the topic of choice is interesting. If I choose to go away for a week with my fiance, just the two of us, and we spend most of our time in the hotel room and, I don't know, on the beach or something, that choice has everything to say about that. I'm happy and grateful to be there. Whereas now if we're stuck together for weeks on end and our choice is taken away, it's much easier for us to, those little drops of irritability and resentment and stepping on each other's toes can build more quickly. Yeah, yeah, and I think to your point, right, whether it be a week away or even a day, like inside watching just Netflix all day, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people have probably done that before, and now that might be the, you're getting the routine of only doing that, right? And so not, not only do you feel that there's no choice, right, on something that you maybe once found enjoyable, you're not finding enjoyable, but it's also for an indefinite amount of time, which is also another factor here, right? And it makes it very challenging to deal with. Um, I think related to this is, 
you know, that all this is kind of, as you called it, a pressure cooker, right? Mm-hmm. And so people are really uh, building up and feeling very annoyed and irritated and angry, right? And they lash out at one another, right? And actually, a lot of the research shows that most domestic violence is a form of emotional expression. It is not instrumental. And so just to define those phrases. So instrumental means you're doing it pretty much just for fun, right? You're you're aggressing on somebody with the intention of it just being um, amusing to you, right? Whereas most sociopathic. Yeah, yeah, it really is, right? You you tend to find that high on high levels of sociopaths and psychopaths, certainly. Um, Whereas domestic violence relates to emotional expression, it means that they don't have another way of expressing themselves, right? They don't have the tools and the skills to express what they're trying to say. Meaning, I don't like what you're doing, right? I'm feeling really irritated right now. I just need a break. I need. Or this hurts my feelings. Yeah, right. That's a big one. That I, when I look at myself and I look what's under anger for me, ninety percent of the time I would say, "Oh shit, someone just hurt my feelings." Yeah, I I think that that pain, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this big debate about anger being a primary or secondary emotion. Yeah, well, can I stop you there? What What's your thought on that? So I think that it can be both. Right? Okay. I think that anger is a primary emotion sometimes, but when we're talking about that underlying pain, right? So just to use your example, about 90% of the time it's pain. The other 10% is probably the primary, uh, is when anger is primary emotion. Right? See, I knew there was a reason I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> I've had this debate with therapists in my office suite and they're like, anger is only a secondary emotion. I'm like, no, no, it, maybe it's mostly a secondary emotion, but it's not only a secondary emotion. And for those of you that don't know, uh, a secondary emotion is a primary emotion is one where it just comes out as a result of the situation. And the secondary emotion means that I'm feeling anger, but there's another emotion that is underneath that anger that might have come up really quickly, like a third of a second. Like you slip on a banana peel, you fall down, you get embarrassed, and then you get angry at your girlfriend for laughing at you. Right, but right. what people see is the anger, but what is underneath the anger is embarrassment. Right. And we don't, I think most people don't have the terminology for that, the awareness and the terminology for that. Right. I think a lot of people will go, especially guys will head towards that anger, right. To protect themselves. And, and I think that it's important to recognize the functional component of anger, right. That anger is functional. It does protect us. Right. And it also pushes people away. Right. And it protects us by pushing people away. Yeah. You know, you know in fact, the number one anger trigger are people we like and people we love right? Mm-hmm. Our romantic partners, right? The people we work with, our best friends are the most, most likely to get under our skin before anybody else, right? And so what does anger do? Again, it protects us because when you're showing anger, people are not, not as likely to laugh at you now for slipping the banana peel, but now they may not want to spend much time with you, right? They may right. want to have distance themselves from you altogether. And especially when this culminates and keeps going and going and going and it's repeated, it makes it very challenging to be around somebody who can't be who are who are not in touch with their emotions in that same way well so let me let me go back a little bit i've been doing a lot of research on how we men are socialized because i think this really plays a big part in this now granted there's other factors you know genetics i would say but and you know how you were raised but i think the socialization piece is huge here and and i talk a lot about the man box culture and and i love this idea because we were all brought up in the man box culture we didn't choose it. We didn't ask it. It's not our fault, but I would argue it is our responsibility to find tools to evolve past those parts of it that you want to evolve past. And basically the man box culture is those rules that were that we've learned from a very, very young age. It starts at the age of four. And 
we don't even realize we're getting taught them, but some of the rules are things like don't feel, mm-hmm. be self-reliant, be invulnerable. Uh, we're cut off from most of our emotions, be aggressive, don't back down, be the provider in the family. And you know, some of those things are good, but I would say most of them really hurt us as adults. And what happens is, you know, if you are, as a kid, think middle school, high school, if you show too much sadness or fear, someone will insult you, usually one of your friends or another peer, and say, dude, don't be such a pussy, don't mm-hmm. be a bitch, don't be a little girl. Right. If you show, and then what happens is you're like, I don't like the way that feels, I'm gonna jump back in the man box. And if you show too much love, joy, romanticism, excitement, flamboyance, they say something like, don't be a fag, don't be gay, and you jump back in the man box. And the problem with that is it cuts off two thirds of the emotional spectrum for us, and we think that's normal. So what are we left with that we can publicly convey without fear of humiliation? It's lust, stress, and the big one, anger, some degree of anger, irritation, annoyance, frustration, rage. So most of the things that we feel as men, if we don't have awareness, if we don't practice this, gets funneled through that anger lens and almost everything comes out as irritation. We know depression comes out as irritability in men. So, I mean, to what extent do you see that kind of coming into this discussion? I think it's a big part of it. You know, I think the fact that we don't have the emotional recognition, emotional awareness, right? And I think that probably people are listening who are even saying, I just don't feel those emotions, right? And, right. and, and I'm sure that it may seem like that to you. And I, don't, I hope this doesn't come across as condescending, but I'm sure it may seem like that to you. And in fact, everyone feels those emotions, mm-hmm. right? But we become so buried and deep inside that anger, right? Because that's what society builds us, builds us and in, builds into us, that of course we're gonna think we don't feel those emotions, yeah. right? And, and just as an example of how deep the societal ingraining is and how early it is, um, Kenneth and Mammy Clark, did a bunch of doll studies back in the 50s related to race. Uh, and they would go ahead and pose two dolls in front of a child, white children and black children. And the dolls are also white and black. And the children between three and six years old. And he want, they wanted to go ahead and establish how young do people internalize social norms. And what they found, they would ask a series of questions, including, you know, which doll's the good doll, which doll's the bad doll, right? Which doll is the evil doll? And what they found is that a lot of the black kids, again, three to six years old, would point to the black doll as being bad, right? And on top of that, when they asked now, which doll are you, as the last question, they would start crying or mm-hmm. even pick the white doll, right? And some would answer without an answer, you know, would be able to answer perfectly fine. But a lot of them picked the white doll and started crying. And so it goes to show, again, three to six years old, they've already internalized racism, yeah. right? And, and so how, you know, so of course that this starts at a young age, right? We are built into this box, right? We, we are born in this box. And I, I agree with you, it's not our fault for being born into this box. And we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to go out of the box, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's so powerful to me. It's the air we breathe. It's, I mean, if we're fish, it's the water we swim in. Like it's so close in front of our face that we can't even tell that it's there. And so one of the reasons I keep talking about this concept is to try and gain a little bit of daylight between that mask we wear, the way in which we're socialized and who we truly are. Because I think you're right, a lot of men out there would be like, I don't feel anything. And it makes me think of alexithymia, right? That Mm -hmm. either you're kind Mm -hmm. of emotionally numb or you just don't have the words to put on how you feel and you haven't connected them with certain physiological states. Right, and why would you have the words to put on what you feel? You're not, yeah, you're, you're not encouraged to do that ever. You're, 
On the right. other hand, you're probably embarrassed, mocked, and humiliated if you yes. even look at that growing up. Yes, right, right. And so it's funny to kind of piggyback one of the examples you said earlier related to your own life. I, you know, I've certainly had times where I was thinking, you know, why am I engaging this argument right now? You know, what am I gaining from this? And I had to do some digging and realize that it was just based off my own insecurity, right? Mm -hmm. I'm engaging this, there's no benefit here. I, you know, I think the debate about politics can go back and forth quite a bit, right? Um, but oftentimes people are so rigid in their own stance that people just keep going ahead and debating uh, just for your own insecurities, right? Um, and, and this doesn't have to just apply to politics, it applies to religion, most debates I would even say, right? Um, but there's certainly times where I engage in debates and I had to think, okay, who am I trying to prove this to, right? I'm not gonna change their opinion on this and I don't really even need to. And so all I'm trying to do is justify to myself that I'm smart enough or that I'm good enough, mm -hmm. right? And so it comes off as this, I'll call it verbal aggression, whether you raise your, your voice, right? This stubbornness, right? Um, and maybe even, you know, cursing, saying, you know, what the fuck are you saying? It doesn't make it, you know, even insulting, you know, you're no. a freaking idiot, you know? Yeah. So it comes off that way. And again, you know, I have to kind of double check myself a little bit here. Why am I doing that? You know, it's really just to prove something to myself. And I don't recognize that in the moment because when we're angry, it's very, very hard to recognize anything in the moment. Well, and let then, me ask you this, pardon me for interrupting. So I think that when we're in that angry state, we're trying to kind of get the other person to realize how right we are. Mm -hmm. And that's all we get concerned with. Like if you and I are in an argument, I'm externalizing all blame onto you. So you're mm -hmm. wrong. And I'm just trying to browbeat you into the understanding to the point where you go, Oh, wow, John, you are so right. Like, I, I don't know what I was thinking. And that's never going to happen. Right, right, right. Because I'm right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, that's one of the things that's so intoxicating about anger, I think, is that um, the self-justification, the mm -hmm. indignance, the, it's, I mean, it's energizing. It's, um, yeah. you feel absolutely vindicated, absolutely justified in everything that you're doing and saying because you're so fucking right. Yeah. And to your credit and to your point with this, there's a study that was done back in 1994 that found that the only emotion people want to experience more than anger is happiness. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the fact that anger is so, I'll say, egocentric or that or so congruent with an emo with the state we want to be in, makes it so reinforcing, and so it's so challenging to stop that. Right? If you want to be in that, why would you ever want to stop? Right? In the moment, you want to be in it. Maybe outside the moment, you don't really want to be cursing at your significant other, but in that moment, it feels so good, mm -hmm. right? and it's so much from an evolutionary perspective, it's so much better for us to come off as. Uh, aggressive, right, and protect ourselves than to come off as soft, right, or pussy. Well, and from an evolutionary perspective, if we're aggressive and protect ourselves, then we live to fight another day. I mean, right. I, I take all these emotions back to kind of when we were living in tribes and how did they serve us? Mm -hmm. Because all those negative emotions, let's say anger, fear, sadness, they all served us really well when there was daily death threats yeah. out there, saber-toothed tigers or bears or whatever it was. Like if you're a really fearful caveman, and you hear a rustling in the bush and you take off and you run back to the cave, you're safe and you live for another day and then right. you've got more of a chance to procreate. Right, right. And everything comes from that evolutionary perspective. You know, yeah. I think, um, you know, anger is very narrow-minded, right? And so when we're angry, we have tunnel vision and that's it. Oh, yeah. We can't see very much more than that. That's really about it. You know, and I think when we're angry, we forget that 
there are also some disadvantages for anger from an evolutionary perspective even too, right? Because when, what are you doing? You're pushing people away. And so it's protective mm -hmm. on some level, but in the long term, it's not, right? In the long term, right, to go back to that tribal mentality, right, we're going ahead and pushing away the people that also need to help serve us, right? It's, it's, right. it's a dual relationship. And so it, it becomes very challenging from a long-term perspective to sustain that type of relationship, you know? And so we end up pushing people away. Again, the people we want the most in our lives, we end up pushing away. So let's go to some more, like, to tools. I, I mean, yeah. like, one of the things that I talk to my clients about is just the metaphor or, or how you kind of visualize emotions in yourself. When I was a kid, I used to think of, um, you know, I'm like a bucket for emotion. Right. And you just, you know, you, you try and contain it as long as you can. And you take as much shit as you can. And you take all the embarrassment and anger and shame and sadness and fear. And you, you just put it in a bucket. And if you can put a lid on it, great. But eventually, you know, you get enough drops in that bucket and inevitably it overflows and you break down. You go volcanic, you get violent, you get depressed, whatever it is, you internalize it, externalize it. And so I, I'm always trying to change the metaphor for them. So the first one is, you know, you've got a bucket of positive emotions and negative emotions, and we need to focus more on that bucket of positive emotions because we're kind of shit at that, mm. honestly. Um, so just that awareness of, oh, hey, I got a bucket of positive emotions and I really need to learn how to cultivate positive emotions more. But how do we stop those little drops of irritations from getting into the bucket or how do we dump the bucket of negative emotions out? Yeah. I like that. How do we dump that out? You know, and I think, you know, look, I think there are ways to dump out the bucket and there are times there, there are ways to put a small leak in the bucket, right. To drill a hole exactly. at the bottom. Right. You're, you're um, going to my next metaphor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you're jumping ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll backtrack then. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, look, it's very easy to say, do things that are relaxing, right. It's very easy to say that. And it's very difficult to think that in the moment. Right. And so I think what's really helpful is to have that list ahead of time mm -hmm. and, and to create that list before you're in the moment. Because if I ask you, you know, if some, what, are you, what is your reaction when someone says calm down? Right. It's like, oh, that's great advice. Thanks. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Right. Fuck you. you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you're angry. I pieces. always tell that to people like, whatever you say to someone that's angry, they're going to say, fuck you, basically. Right. They don't say <laughs> it. Dude, right. just chill, relax, you know, yeah. like, take a deep breath. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can so, listen to that to yourself, I would argue. Yes. Yes. And I we agree. have to learn that skill. Right. Right. And I think you can learn that skill by thinking about it ahead of time and before you're even in the situation. Right. So let's plan ahead. Right. Let's create a list of, you know, anywhere between three to 10 things you can do. Right. Especially now, given everything going on with coronavirus mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I think people are just a little bit more on edge in general. And we have more limited ways to de-escalate the situation, right? But still there are ways, right? And so for some people, it's deep breathing. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe you're lucky enough, we can go ahead and go for a walk, right? But just to go back actually to deep breathing for a moment, there's some research that shows that's one of the most effective ways. Um, and yeah, and if you, because if you think about it for a moment, right? How can you be angry if you don't have a physiological reaction, right? I can tell you to think about an angry thought, but it doesn't mean anything unless you have that arousal with it. So anger is so multi -component. Break down the physiological reaction for us. Sure. So there's increased heart rate, there's muscle tension, right? There's um, usually sweaty palms as well, um, kind of perspiring and perspiring in general, right? Mm -hmm. The only difference between males and females in anger is that females are more likely to cry, which, you know, I think is very obviously goes right back to our cultural norm. Right? Socialization, of, yeah. Right, right. That you're not supposed to cry as a guy. Right. Um, but, you know, 
what's interesting is that most people don't even realize that they have the muscle tension. They don't realize that they have the physiological right. arousal right. when they're angry. Right. Yep. And that's actually a big cue to ourselves that yep. we're angry. Right. And so how do we go ahead and recognize this ahead of time? You know, so there's something called progressive muscle relaxation, mm -hmm. which I would really recommend. I, I think it's so, so helpful because if you can practice that outside, right, of your anger episode, you can start to recognize the muscle tension in your body beforehand. Um, and, and I love, love using that with my clients. It really, because that allows you to take a deep breath when you're in the moment. If you practice it enough, it allows you to take a deep breath in the moment, reconsider the situation and be like, is this really what I want to do right now? Is this really how I want to treat the person I love? Right? No, probably not. So let me do something else, something that's more adaptive. Maybe that means just going for a walk for 10 minutes, right? Because you can't think of anything else to do right now. Or maybe that means, you know, look, you're going to be more vulnerable, which we can, that's a whole like two hour conversation oh, yeah. right there is vulnerability, right? Um, if not way more than that. Um, yeah. But maybe you decide to be more vulnerable and you say, look, you know, I really appreciate everything you've done for me right now and I appreciate your perspective and I don't share that perspective and I want, you know, I'm feeling really hurt from what you said and I want to work this out with you. And that's so hard for people to say, particularly guys. I'm they, still working on that. Yeah, yeah, it really is, right? It really, you know, it's a challenge for me too sometimes, right? Yeah. It's to go ahead and to be that vulnerable saying, look, I want to work through this with you, right? There's a collaboration approach, but even before that, to say, I'm feeling hurt. Yeah. So it's funny, I, I was, um, we, I think exercise is another great tool for managing anger. We can get to that. Especially weightlifting, I would say, in particular. Yeah, weightlifting and running. It's, it's extra energy. I see that emotion, like it needs to move. And mm -hmm. it's trying to energize us to defeat something or move an obstacle out of our way. So lifting weights gets you to the point where you're so exhausted, you can't be tired anymore. Yeah, yeah. So th there's a great thing that I actually love doing with my clients sometimes too. Um, and I'll change the exercise based off what's going on for the client and their own kind of health concerns. But even doing as many jumping jacks, as many push-ups as you can to the point where it's exhausting, right? Um, and so, you know, the, a few weeks ago, about five weeks ago, I wanted to know how many I could do without stopping, not even a little bit, right? Um, and so I was able to knock out 101. I was very impressed with myself. I've never been able to do that before. That's quite good. Yeah, yeah. It's, I was very impressed. I was never be able to do that again. I probably won't be able to do that again. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I couldn't move after that. You know, I was, I was yeah. laying flat on the floor with my face against the rug, right, for a good few minutes. <laughs> I can't go ahead and aggress on anybody. I don't even want to yeah. speak at that point, right? And so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So I was going to say, I mean, but back to that idea of breathing, like one of the things I'll, sh I'll do with my clients is I'll explain that autonomic nervous system and the mm -hmm. importance that has in these emotions and the importance of deep breathing. You know, for instance, so we've got the autonomic nervous system coming from the brain. It's the bundle of nerves running to every organ in your body. And it splits into two systems. One is the sympathetic nervous system. The other is the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is the fight, flight, freeze, or the stress response. Parasympathetic is responsible for the relaxation or the rest and digest response. And what I find with a lot of the men that I deal with is that sympathetic nervous system is either um, on a hair trigger or always on. Because of how we've been socialized, many of us are hypervigilant. And, and so you got to understand that we need to turn off that fight, flight, freeze response in order to relax and I think we need to practice that skill through something like deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation when we're not getting angry, when we're calm, so that we have a better chance of accessing those tools or that, that sympathetic nervous or the parasympathetic nervous system when we are getting activated. 
Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with you on that. I think trying to activate more the rest and digest, right? trying to not engage as much with the increased heart rate and the muscle tension, right? trying to decrease that is really the first step for like a multi-component process of working with anger, right? Because that allows well, you to- I would, I would say, I would back up a step and say awareness is the first step because yeah, to your well, right. earlier, right? That most of us don't even know when we've got the muscle tension because muscle tension is so prevalent for us. We don't know when our heart rate goes up because we're not used to tuning into our body. And so one of the things I'll tell a lot of men is, I need you to get out of your head and into your body. Take your attention out of your thoughts and I need you to start paying attention to your body as much as you can. Because we're so rewarded growing up, we're socialized to think, problem solve, to get good grades. And we are comfortable staying in our heads, but that's not the whole picture. And Descartes really fucked us several hundred <laughs> years ago when he said, I think therefore I am, man, I bought that shit for years. I think therefore I am. I'm a good thinker. I'm that's, that was completely wrong. It's all about mind body connection. So to take your attention and put it into your body and begin to learn when your heart rate is increasing, when you are getting muscle tension in your neck or shoulders or jaw or hands or forearms, because that's when you can go, oh shit, something's annoying me. And if you can get on it early, you can nip it in the bud. Yes, 100%. I couldn't agree more with you on that one, right? Trying to, awareness is certainly the first step, right? And then the, I think the physiological component, right? Um, you know, I certainly anecdotally have had clients who say that most of their anger seems to centralize right, in certain areas, right? So I've had clients before who say their back of their neck, their right shoulder, which is this bizarre place I mean, when I think about it, right? Um, their hand. that's right? their tell. It right? is. Yeah, they can right. that tell, do that. Right, right. And it doesn't matter if I think it's bizarre. I, I mean, I even told them, I'm yeah. very transparent like clients. That's an odd place for you to have, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> but, like good for you. My right? forearms. Like, okay, right. I don't get that. But that doesn't right. mean it's wrong. Right, right. It's different. Yeah. And you know what? It's great that people can recognize it, right? That's really yeah. what it comes down to. It is, I don't need to recognize it for you. You need to recognize it. And the fact that you know that, 100%, like that's great. You know, it, Another physiological uh, tool that I use uh, a lot is it's TIP, right, from DBT. Uh, in particular, decreasing one's uh, heart rate, right? So what I have them do, it's uh, activates the mammalian dive reflex. And I love this one. I think it's fantastic. I show it to my clients. There's a YouTube video on it. Uh, just type in mammalian dive reflex into YouTube. And so it's you a mammalian dive reflex. Dive. Okay. Yep. And it's about a minute and 38 seconds long. I've watched it too many times. The fact that I know that it's on my head. I will uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can watch this person hold his breath for a minute and a half. And I'm not saying do that, but certainly to hold your breath for a little bit, right? 30 seconds a minute. And you can see his heart rate cut in half from 76 to 38, right? And it's very, very impressive, right? Because from holding his up, breath, just from holding his breath, yeah, right, holding his breath underwater, right? So he fills oh. up his sink with water and he does that, yeah. And if, I mean, I'm not expecting people to, be able to do that for a minute and a half, right? If, <laughs> right? if you can do it for 30 seconds, great, take 10 seconds and then do it again. Yeah, I definitely can't do a minute and a half. <laughs> I feel like uh, maybe as a kid, you know, you maybe go ahead and try to hold your, your breath underwater for a bit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, um, I could only ever do like a minute, minute and five, right? <laughs> I probably haven't gotten any better. Um, but if you could do that, right? Even again, 30 seconds, take five or 10 seconds, catch your breath, and then do it again, and then again, right? And he, he's using a Fitbit or an equivalent too, and he, so you can see the heart rate go down. Yeah, so it's really I think so much of this is tied to our physiology and our breath. You know, doing yeah. breath work is huge. And back to your, I wanted to mention to the audience 
that, you know, Tom mentioned progressive muscle relaxation. And Tom, do you have an audio file that you could share with that? Because I've got one that I'll put a link to. So yeah, if, yeah. it'd be great if we could do both, actually, because sure. I think some people vibe with some people's voices more than others. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to relax, that's a big deal. Right, right. It is. Um, yeah. So I, w- I would appreciate it if you would Absolutely. be willing to share that. Um, and then I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but it also makes me think of you know, Viktor Frankl's quote about, you know, there's a, there's a gap between stimulus and response. And in that gap lies choice, lies freedom. And I'm paraphrasing, but I talk to my clients a lot about that. And there's neuroscience that shows that there's a third of a second between when your rational mind is in charge of you and when your emotional mind rears out and takes control. And that's a third of a second. So that's the gap. So that's where we need to be aware. That's where we need to be in the present moment. That's where we need to be tuned into our bodies so that the more we do that, the more we can lengthen that gap, third of a second, half a second, second, five seconds. The more you do that, the more you have time to think, reinterpret, reframe, deep breath, get the hell out of the situation. Whatever it is you need to do to take care of yourself, you get better at it with practice. Yeah. So it's funny. When I first learned about study, I was, I loved that study, right? I, <laughs> I thought it was great. Because... Right? <laughs> It, it was you were in the right place then tom yeah right right <laughs> it's true i i because what it meant was that you know it, it adds even more hope right because as what you're saying you're reconditioning your body but it doesn't mean just because you feel this way right now doesn't mean it has to stay that way the fact that you do have that choice right the fact that you have that choice between when the information sent to your amygdala and i think your uh, frontal cortex i think is where it goes after that um right? The fact that you have that, right, is amazing, right? Because you can keep working on that. You can expand that, right? You can go ahead and you're not, you're not a victim to the way you're feeling, right? Yeah. But you can choose to change your response, your emotion, your thoughts. Yeah. You know? So I, I was going to write a second book and I was going to entitle it, Stopping Your Brain's Bitch. <laughs> mom said you can't use that word in the book title and i was like mom if you look at you know top the three of the top 10 in nonfiction have the word fuck in the title but, uh. is that uh, manson's book was that the time was uh, manson, manson <laughs> uh, faith harper and there was one other faith harper wrote unfuck your brain which is uh, a great book on trauma actually mm-hmm. and for, written for the lay person and she swears like a sailor oh my god I actually hit her up on Twitter and I was like, Hey, I need you to come up. Actually her, her first tweet that I saw was, um, Hey, I got a news for all you people out there that got a problem with the language that I use in my book, go find another fucking book. And I was like, (laughs) Oh, I like her. And so I I DM'd her and I was like, Hey, I need you to come on my podcast. You can swear as much as you want. And she DM me back. She's like, I'm in. (laughs) That's awesome. awesome. Sharp as a whip. (laughs) <laughs> that's amazing um, yeah there's a little levity in there but yeah i think you know we're on the same boat here on the same track that um a lot of this has to do with physiology a lot of it has to do with awareness to me a lot of it has to do with um reframing intention like i find intention is a big part of it right that if you if someone does something to transgress on you if they do something that crosses your boundaries or annoys you if you interpret it as intentional you're gonna be pissed off or angrier if you say, oh, that was probably just a mistake, not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, uh, and the research shows that people have a higher uh, hostile attribution bias, right? People have higher, who are higher in trade anger have higher levels of hostile attribution bias, right? And so, you know, I, I think about this also in the other way oftentimes too, right? So if somebody, 
when we place expectations on people, it becomes very much about people needing to live up to these expectations. And I want to talk about what needing means in a little bit. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, people need to live up to these expectations. But when we don't have these expectations, suddenly anything nice that someone does becomes the most magnificent world thing in the world, right? And so can I think about, let's say, parents, maybe they well, they take care of you, right? They pay for your clothes when you're younger, but pay for your food, maybe cook for you, right? Um, and maybe, you know, at some developmental level, some of this is starting to decrease, right? Um, but maybe they also pay for some of your college if you go to college, right? Whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, we might say thank you, right? That's, but that might be about it, right? Maybe you do a little mm -hmm. bit more than that. But if someone buys you a coffee at Starbucks, right? Uh, out of the blue. And, out of the blue, don't expect yeah. it. The person just goes, let me get the next five people online. Just put them on my tab, right? And you walk up to line, the line and you go, someone goes, oh, it's paid for already. That's amazing, right? It's the best day of your life. Suddenly, right? <laughs> that really puts you on a good, in a good mood for the rest of the day. Or it it can. does, yeah, yeah. And so that expectation really has a lot to do with the way we feel, you know? And so because we didn't have that expectation, the negative, exp uh, we didn't have the expectation that person should be nice to us, it ends up being that when they are nice to us, it's really like, quite pleasant, right? And the same yeah. thing I think is true the other way. When we have the expectation that they should be respectful to us at all times, every time. Oh, you know, respect is a killer. It is. It's so, he was disrespectful it, to me. Yeah, yeah. Was he really? <laughs> right, right. There's the interpretation that they did it deliberately, right? Meanwhile, the person could be cutting you off because they're trying to go somewhere else that they're really rushing to get to the hospital right now. We have yeah. no idea, right? But because we don't know, What's the point? What's the, why is it helpful to you to go ahead and think about it in a negative way? You know, it's, it's not helpful, actually, yeah. right? We don't actually well, know, you know what's I'm always going talking on. with clients about, you know, pick the interpretation that serves you the best. So if we go back to your example on the freeway, you know, let's say you're doing 80 in the fast lane and someone comes up 100 and is riding your ass on the freeway and you're like, I'm, dude, I'm going fast enough. Right. And, you know, then you know, that always, it triggers anger for a rage for a lot of people because there's several boundary violations there depending on how it plays out. Right. But, you know, you've got two choices there. Well, I guess two or more, but you could just, I mean, the typical one is that guy's an asshole. Like I'm going to make him pay. And, you know, mm -hmm. you tap on your brakes a little bit and you start to fuck with him and then it can escalate and get all sorts of crazy. Mm -hmm. um, that's more typical, I would say, some way of, some variation of that. Yeah. The other way you can do is just pull over one lane, let the dude go by and think to yourself, maybe he's got a pregnant wife in the backseat that needs to get to the ER. Maybe he's got a sick kid that needs to get to the doctor. Because we don't know. I mean, we're making these stories up in our heads all the time. So look at the stories you're telling yourself and pick stories that serve you. Right, right. And, and look, I'm a big proponent of being as realistic as possible, you know? And so the truth of the matter is we don't know. So let's go ahead and pick the one, as you're saying, that best serves you. Right? If yeah. you're going to pick a story that we don't even know is accurate anyway, pick one that best serves you, right? Pick yeah. one that's going to be the most helpful to you, right? Um, okay, and I, wait, think I, got, I got a question because I'm, I'm geeking out right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> no one I've had on the show has ever been able to answer this question, and I think you can. Oh, a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. Should I wait a little bit? I can build the pressure. No, go ahead. Tell me. Tell me. Okay. <laughs> tell, talk a little bit about the difference between state and trait anger, like anger versus hostility. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, so trait anger is a genetic predisposition, right, to, to be angry more often, right? Whereas state anger 
is much more about just the specific incur occurrence, the specific incident that you're referring to, right? So trade anger, there's some research that shows that anger is uh, about 25 to 33% genetic. Some of the research varies a little bit, but it's about one quarter to one third, right? Is based in genetics, okay. which means that 67 to 75% is based off your environment, right? Which means you have a lot of control over how you respond to your anger, right? And so trade anger, again, is just genetic predisposition to act a certain way, to be angry. But the state anger is each specific episode. And my understanding of the, the hostility as a trait is that you've got more predilection or you're more um, inclined to interpret a lot of situations hostily, negatively, yes. with yes. malice. Um, and those interpretations are killers. Right, right. She did yeah. that on purpose. Mm -hmm. She's trying to make me look bad. Right. You know, those interpretations, absent of information to prove the, the truth of them, don't serve us at all. And so, right. the, and, and this goes back to awareness, right? So part of it is awareness of your body and your physiology. Part of it, I would say, is our, uh, the awareness of the thoughts in your head and the stories that you're telling yourself, the interpretations you're making of other people's intentions and actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's why I think it's so important to try and think realistically, right? So, you know, I think um, Albert Ellis was created this idea of rational, we used to call rational therapy, then after a few transformations, rational mode of behavior therapy. Yeah, um, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, and I use it with a lot of my clients. Um, and, you know, I think about, you know, he said anger is predominantly, at least the underlying component is based off shooting on yourself or shooting on other people. Mm -hmm. Or also masturbation is another phrase he used, right? <laughs> um, you know, but essentially saying that someone should, must, need, or have to act a certain way, right? They should treat, be nice to you. They have to be respectful to you. They should use their blinker. They shouldn't yell at you, right? But the truth of the matter is that that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want them to. And I'm not saying I want someone to start yelling at me and start cursing me out, right? I'm not saying yeah. I want that, but I'm saying that it's not true that you sh they shouldn't do that, right? No one has to do anything in life except die. That's the only thing we have to do. Like, we don't have to pay taxes. There are consequences, you know, for that. And thankfully, uh, you know, two months, it's been pushed for two months if we have to file for federal taxes. So I have a yeah. little more time to avoid it. No, <laughs> um, but, you know, you don't even have to pay taxes. There are just consequences for that, yeah. right? So it's still a choice. The only thing we have to do in life is die. That's it. And so when you're thinking about this, when we're using these words, should, must, need, and have, we become so rigid and so fixated. This is the only way something could happen. And that makes our anger skyrocket, right? Whereas if we recognize that we would like them to act a certain way, right? We realize that we start to have so much more compassion for ourselves than other people, right? And, and we could get into what that means in a, in a few yeah. minutes, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, you know, my brain just kind of explodes when you're talking and I, I forget 90% of what I'm thinking, and then I'll go with one. Um, but one of the things that made, one of the neurons that just connected just now was the idea of playing, I've been playing this game with myself recently, where I'm just, you know, kind of with curiosity and non judgment, watching myself play, I guess I would call it the social police. Mm. And, and just like, like driving, right? Oh, he should have used his blinker. Oh, that was an illegal lane change. Oh, he shouldn't be going that fast. Mm -hmm. Or why are they going so slow? And like just these judgments that come out and, you know, I think they used to make me angry. And I'm like, yeah. it doesn't fucking matter. Like if right. they don't want to use their blinker, that's their choice. 
It's their life. It has nothing to do with me. Or, you know, people cutting in line or, you know, like just we have all these rules in our head and I don't know where the rules come from. You know, maybe partly it was how mom raised me or mom and dad raised me of, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this. You should treat, you know, tell the truth. Don't cut in line, give people, you know, the right change. I don't know, but everyone's got them. Yeah. And I do think it goes right back to this social script, right? It's the idea that, you know, society built these rules for us, right? And where you grow up really changes what these rules are. But I think there is some that are certainly universal, right? Um, but yeah, everyone does have these rules, right? And so I think a lot of people will play the social police game. Um, and you know what, I think, again, I think this goes right back to what we're talking about. Um, the idea of even if it does impact your life, right? It doesn't mean that they shouldn't have done it, right? Mm-hmm. And so actually Albert Ellis uh, created the Ellis Institute over in New York um i'm in new york so i'm just pointing to the city right now but <laughs> um but he created the ellis institute in new york and there it was ended up being a bit of a fallout between the two the ellis institute as an organization and albert ellis himself um, oh wow yeah yeah it ended up being you know kind of this larger uh story um and he gave everything he had to the institute right and so when he ended up needing i guess money to pay some medical bills right there was pushback right wow. they, they didn't yeah yeah and so as a result, um, you know, he ended up going to court and, you know, I have to give him a lot of credit. He really stuck to his philosophy that, you know, there's no reason they shouldn't be doing anything different. I want the money. I need the money to survive. Mm-hmm. Right. And it doesn't mean that they should be doing anything different. Right. And so I have to, you know, I really want to have a special place for people who not just walk the walk, but also talk the t- talk the talk and walk the walk, you know. Uh, and, and he really did that, you know, and so he's not just talking out of his ass, right? He, he really lived by this philosophy yeah. that just because you want someone else to do something different, and even if it negatively impacts you, it doesn't mean that they should. We all believe we're doing what we think is right in that moment, which is why we're doing it, right? Or we mm-hmm. believe that that's what we want to do in the moment, right? And if we can recognize that, then it, suddenly we're allowing people to do whatever they want to do, right? No one responds well for, to other people telling them what to do, right? You're not going to respond well to me saying exactly what you should be doing all the yeah. time, right? And so why, why are we trying to ascribe our rules of life to them? Let them live their life. Doesn't mean, again, you have to like it. I just want to keep stressing it. You don't have to like it, but it doesn't mean that they should live your life either. Yeah, and, and I think those rules of, of shoulds and should nots, it's, and, and you know, part of it, what, I mean, what I work with clients is a lot is that internal awareness, because I, I think in men in general, we're so externally focused which that's a really interesting point here too, because with this global pandemic, we are forced to turn inward. And, and I'm really hoping that men out there will take this opportunity to turn inwards and be curious about what's going on internally in their own internal landscape of thought and feeling, because I really think that the more we get into that, the better this world gets. The more aware we get of ourselves, the more we learn to spend time, more time in the present moment, the better this world gets, the more we learn to communicate, the better off things are. And I, I kind of look at this time as being in a cocoon, that you know, this is time to do internal work, to do metamorphosis, to figure out where is it I want to go when we do finally emerge from this, and what's the new stage of life that I'm entering, and how do I want to be? What's the new narrative that I'm telling myself as I walk into this next chapter? Yeah, it, so it's funny because people talk about, you know, do... Right now, you could do all the projects that in the house that you've been wanting to do, 
that you never got around to, right? That's what people keep saying to do right now. But the project could also just be working on yourself. You know, mm -hmm. I have a friend right now um, who has told me that they're meditating five times a day right now, which is amazing, right? It's amazing yeah. that they're doing that. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it once, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do, I mean, I think that that's one of the foundational skills also is some form of meditation. I mean, I teach mindfulness, but I think we need to learn to stop doing and start being. After all, we are human beings. And I mean, I think that that's kind of the foundational skill because that increases your level of awareness of what's going on in your head and your body. It also teaches the skill of attentional control so that you can pull yourself out of, you know, automatically go into a negative future or negative past and bring yourself via focus on your breath to the present moment. And, yeah. you know, to me right now, I'm doing that hundreds of times a day because the future is uncertain. I don't know what's coming in the future. I don't know how this is going to shake out. How, I, I mean, I think it's going to have a massive impact. I think it's going to shape, you know, our brain structure. It's going to have an impact on that. It's going to impact how we socialize. It's going to impact, do we shake hands? It's going to impact the use of Zoom more. It's going to impact how do we do meetings. Um, it's going to impact, geez, obesity, domestic violence, pregnancies, all sorts of things. But the more I get caught up in that negative future, the more anxious I get, the more anxious I get, the more prone I am to anger. Mm -hmm. And so to keep bringing myself back via focus on my breath to the present moment is really the best strategy that I have right now. Yeah. And I love that you said that, you know, to, to recognize what makes you susceptible to anger, right? Mm -hmm. Recognizing that train of thought is going to make you feel more anxious, which is going to make you feel more angry, right? And I think it's so important to recognize what our triggers are, right? What makes us more susceptible to the, the anger outbursts and the anger episodes, you know? And so I think a big part of this is, you know, we can stop the path before it even, before even walking down the path. We don't have to go down that path, right? A lot of the times, right? So for me, um, I love, I used to work at a nursery. And so I love the smell of magnolia trees and cherry blossoms, yeah. right? Or just what they look like even, you know, yeah. um, freshly cut lawns, right? Love that. Um, and so I even have my window open um, just because I love the smell of that, you know? And so for me, I can't, you know, I can't spend hours upon hours outside right now, but I can still get that smell back. And that's reminiscent of like very fond memories for me, right? And so, you know, I think that everyone can do something like that even, right? Just to interrupt that pattern, right? Because the more we walk down that same path, right? The easier it is to walk down it again, right? It's kind of like a, if you take your pen and draw a straight line on the paper and you just do that repeatedly over and over and over again in the same place, it becomes so ingrained. Right. And yeah. so when you try to write over it, just gently, you'll find that you just go into that groove. You'll find mm -hmm. you find going fall into that same groove. And we're no different as a behavioral pattern, right? We're talking about behavioral patterns. You know, if we don't break that behavioral pattern, by first recognize that it's even a thing, it's so important, right? But if we don't break that behavioral pattern, then of course we're gonna keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. So yeah, mindlessly, automatically, yeah, right. unconsciously. Right. You don't even mean to, Without but it's happening. Awareness. Yes. Right. Right. And that's why that awareness is so important, you know? And so um, I'd really encourage people to go ahead and look, look at their anger episodes, see what gets them going. Right. Mm -hmm. And then but also at some point, figure out what emotions really underlying the anger. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I think that that there's probably a good chance you're feeling hurt. Um, well, and if I can jump in there, I think it's really important to look at our angry episodes um, with curiosity and compassion. 
and non-judgment because I think there's a lot of the only phrase I can come up with is meta emotion or feeling about feeling, right? So you get really angry, you lose your temper, you scream at someone, call them names, punch a hole in the wall, whatever you do. And then when you, when the anger passes, you feel shame, you feel embarrassment, you feel sad, you feel guilt. And that stuff accumulates over time. Those are drops in that bucket of negative emotions. And until we find ways to empty that bucket, and, and I like your idea of drilling holes, but we've got to find ways to empty that bucket and fill up the bucket of positive emotions. And the, the extension of the metaphor that I talked about earlier was, I remember I had a client came in years ago and he's, he was talking about that, that the bucket would fill up and overflow. And so we were talking about different metaphors and I was like, he said, well, what about like a strainer, like a colander? And I said, yeah, that's great. I think that's really, that's the next step, right? Is, you know, you got a colander, you pour the hot water in there with the pasta and all the hot water goes right through the colander and all the hot water is all the shit that you want to get rid of anger, fear, guilt, shame, anxiety, stress, it just passes right through you because emotions aren't meant to stay with you. They're messengers. They're meant to stay with you for seconds, not years. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking about that and like, okay, yeah, that's a way better. You know, the good stuff sticks with you, the kind words, the compliments, the positives. And as we were talking about this, I said, you know, I, I really need something with bigger holes because <laughs> like, I'm getting negative emotion all day long in the job that I do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you are as well. So I thought of, you know, this huge fishing net with big gaping holes in it stretched across a river and, and it's my imagination, my visualization, so I can do what I want with it. So in my imagination, all the water running, rushing towards me is the emotion of the day. And I would say the majority of it is negative because of the negativity bias of the human mind and the good stuff or the the bad stuff just goes right through that net on a second by second basis and the good stuff kind words compliments good deeds all that sticks to the net magically and and so i mean I, i like the the metaphor idea of just like let that shit go through you right away um what are your thoughts on the yeah i I like that metaphor you use for yourself. I think that's great. Um, I do think that C- Christian Conti um, does some work on yeah. anger as well. Yeah. And he has a book actually on uh, metaphors to use in therapy. And a lot of them are based off anger or surround anger. Right. Okay. And so um, and I read it just a few years ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty helpful. I think if he does find metaphors to be helpful, I think that there's some research showing that to be helpful as well. Yeah, that's metaphors, quite a bit yeah. of that. Um, quite helpful. Yeah, and I like that you're. Uh, I like your metaphor, though, of the net, and I really believe what you're saying too, in terms of, you know, if we let things stick to that net that are ne- negative, right? You'll find a bunch of fish, right? You'll find a ton of fish, and you'll find some big fish, right? But if we don't give it as much credence, or as much, if we don't look at it as much, or give it enough attention, right, um, or focus on it so much, that fish suddenly shrinks. Right, it no longer becomes a giant fish; becomes so much smaller and just goes right yeah, through the net. Point. You know, and and so. If we but that's have- also what anger does. I, I you know, anger. Yes. When we're angry, we overfocus on negative things or those things that are making us angry. We just drill down on it, and as you mentioned, you get hyper focused and have that mm-hmm. tunnel vision on that one thing that's really pissing you off. Yeah, and then it yeah. grows in, in size when you do that. Yeah, and there's some research by Ray Novaco over in California who looks at rumination, right? Rumination mm-hmm. is a big moderating variable with anger and aggression, right? Meaning when you're angry and you keep thinking about it over and over and over and over and over again in your head and you're playing it through, right? That's not the same thing as trying to work it out, right? 
all that's doing is making you more angry, right? Yeah. And all that's going to do is lead, lead to aggression, right? And so, you know, exercising, I, I love that, you know, going to work out, but I think that's a great way to get your mind off it. You know, going ahead and watching a comedy, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Or a gratitude. I think practicing gratitude, yeah. things that you're grateful for. And, you know, I, when I teach gratitude, um, you know, it, you can start easy, you know, three things you're grateful for each day. They've got to be different things each day. They can't be the same things over and over and over. Otherwise we had adapt to it and uh the hedonic treadmill kind of that sorry, kicks on. in and we just habituate um, sorry, i lost audio for a moment i'm sorry can you feel okay. that so yeah i was saying with with gratitude you start off simple with three things you're grateful for each day yeah. and those things have to vary you can't do the same things over and over and over otherwise you habituate to it and it doesn't help you out but right. you know to me there's three layers of gratitude there's that which you are grateful for that's obvious like I'm grateful for my mom and dad and their health. I'm grateful for the place that I live in. I'm grateful for my children, you know, that kind of thing. Those are the obvious things to me. The next level is being grateful for things that you have to look a little bit deeper for the less obvious. Like I'm grateful for having the use of my legs. I'm grateful for um, being able to feed myself with a fork. I'm grateful for living on a planet that has oxygen that we can breathe. And then the third level is being grateful for the biggest challenges in your life. So for instance, something like, I'm grateful for the contentious divorce that I went through eight years ago, because it taught me to really, really fine tune and master the emotional management tools that I teach to my clients. Yeah. So I, I love that. You know, I, I, uh, I'm a big follower of stoicism, right? I try and read something about stoicism every day, right? Um, and try and live that out that day, right? So kind of talk about gratitude. I guess my gratitude would be stoicism. Um, but, you know, it, I think with that, a big component of it is, you know, they say wish hardships on the people to whom you're closest, right? Uh -huh. With whom you're closest, right? And I think that's so interesting. And it's exactly paradoxical, right? It's mm -hmm. exactly what you wouldn't think to do. but Stoicism talks about how that builds character, that builds us up, right? And I think it's very hard when you're going through the hardship, right? Because I can imagine right now, you know, if I'm going through a very difficult time and I can't afford things and I'm thinking I'm left here isolated by myself or I'm a domestic violence incident right now, I can imagine saying, yeah, it's easy for you to say that right now. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, it's very, very easy to say that. Um, and, right, you know, I think that everyone has hardships, right? but can we use them as tools and avenues to build our character, right? So going right back to that fishing net metaphor, right? You'll find a bunch of fish that's gonna go there, right? But that will come through your net, will come to your net. You're, it's up to you to let them go through the net, right? And I think that's so important. That hardship could be just going right through the net and could eventually actually become the thing that, cap that gets captured by the net in terms of a positive thing, mm -hmm. right? We want it to go through the net as a negative, we want it to stay in the net as if it's a positive. And if we can change our perspective, that, then we can do that. I think, again, that's so much easier said than done. It takes a lot when of practice to do that. All well. these things take practice. I mean, there's no easy way, I would say. They all take practice and effort. And I think part of it, to dovetail on your point, is training our attention to focus more of the time. I don't think we can do this all of the time, right. unless you know, you're a Tibetan monk that <laughs> has done 10,000 10, hours plus meditation. But right. you know, I think we want to spend more of our time focusing on what's right in our lives. What are we grateful for? What's, go what's going well? to offset that negativity bias that naturally takes hold of our mind without any training. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big deal. 
And that's why in my anger management classes, like I'm always, I'll teach like one tool to increase positive emotions or thoughts and one tool to reduce the intensity of anger or angry thoughts. Yeah, I I love that. I do. I think that that's great because it's not just enough to say, tell someone, hey, don't do this, right? Hey, Mm -hmm. don't be angry, right? Because first of all, it's not realistic, right? (laughs) Uh, The second thing is, it's not helpful to say, don't yell at the person. We want to also help you figure out what to do. Because at the end of the day, if you don't know what to do, then you're just going to go back on the same pattern that you already do. You know, and so you have to, and so it's so helpful to know how to actually communicate. And that's where I think, you know, being vulnerable and having compassion can really be drawn in. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Oh man, there's so many ways to go on this. So like- (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) Okay, so so here's what I want to go to vulnerability and then let's let's wrap it up with um, kind of your best tool to either dump out the bucket of negative emotions or fill up the bucket of positive. But to speak to vulnerability for a moment, like I, I see so many men that have so much armor on that, you know, they've, they're successful in business. They've worked hard on their body. You know, they're fighting jujitsu or MMA and they, you know, to me, I always look at muscle as armor, as fancy clothes, as armor that what are you trying to protect? And, and I think that what we're trying to do is, not allow people inside to not show how we're truly feeling to not communicate because that fucking that scares the shit out of us Mm -hmm. that's scary that to me takes courage to be vulnerable that to me takes courage to go spelunking in the depths of your brain of your mind yeah no i i think it's incredibly intimidating i'm actually just taking a deep breath right now just thinking about that you know (laughs) i really am (laughs) so it's actually really funny because um so i'm also a volunteer firefighter in my town um and so there's a lot of uh i mean that's a whole separate conversation right about what what that's like well that's Um, volume number two of this interview (laughs) i'm down i'm game for it (laughs) um but yeah so with that though right so for me personally, right, it's not, I don't think it's courageous for me to go into a burning building. I really don't because I'm not afraid to go into it, right? I'm Okay, we, so we differ on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful for you going into the burning building. Everyone has strengths. <laughs> yeah. Mine's gratitude. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's just not intimidating to me, right? I'm dressed or we call it donned right? And my, my equipment and my gear, um, I have the hose with me and I'm with people that I trust my life, right? And so for me, it's not intimidating, right? I literally am trusting them with my life, you know? Whereas, uh, you know, and I think Gandhi actually speaks this a little bit too. Courage is not going, not doing something you're not afraid of, right? Mm, It's going ahead and doing something you are afraid of. Yep. Right. And so how do you, so to go ahead, people often hide their emotions, right? Try and conceal themselves, right? And try not to feel all those negative emotions because they're so afraid of it. And I think what's really funny is that um, trying not to feel those emotions doesn't make you courageous, right? Doing something that some people would view as anxiety provoking and you don't doesn't make you courageous. Yep. It's doing it when you still feel anxious. Yeah. Right? I, yeah, I define courage as overcoming your fear or walking yeah. through your fear. If, if there's no fear, there's no courage. That's right. Yeah, right. It's no different than just for me painting the wall, 
right? Yeah. It's no different from that. It's still lacking courage. Now, I guess I could- Okay, wait, let me back you up a second. So what is it that men are afraid? Mm. Why are they afraid to go into their emotions? What do you see? What do you know? Yeah, I, I think that we're not, men, men aren't built that way, right? Men, oh, sorry, men are not conditioned that way, right. right? Let me rephrase that, right? So we are certainly not conditioned that way to go ahead and to think about feeling anxious and sad, right? And to feel ashamed and guilty, right? Even if you do, you try to push that down, right? I think mm -hmm. substance use is a great example of that, right? You go ahead and use to not feel those emotions. Oh, yeah. And then you end up feeling more of it as a result of using, right? Yeah. And so how do you combat that? Right. And so a big component of that, I think, is that we have to learn to be OK with those emotions. That takes a lot of time. I think the big thing is that if we think we aren't, uh, I think that feeling those emotions makes us think that we're not good enough. Right. Mm -hmm. That we're bad, that we're damaged and we're wronged in some way. Right. That we are not good enough human beings. Right. That if I was really that good, I wouldn't be feeling ashamed right now. But all you're doing actually is building it up. So now not only is it just a small hill, right? But building it up to the point becomes this larger mountain, right? Uh, maybe even the size of Mount Everest at this point, you know, mm -hmm. depending on how long you push it down for. And so how do you go ahead and start to chip away at that mountain, right? It takes a lot of courage, right? Especially if this is the way you've been acting for so long, right? Which of yeah. course most men are, most men do rather. Well, um, and I, I think, you know, one of the things I see, if I can jump in there is yeah. that men, um, they're afraid of emotion because they think they're going to get overwhelmed mm -hmm. and dominated by the emotion. And one of the things I've heard from some of the executive co uh, clients that I have is that, you know, often I'm trying to get them to be more vulnerable and open with their wife at home because, you know, they're killing it at work, but then they go home and that's where a lot of the misery is. And it's often because, you know, the wife says, I can't connect with my husband, which is the biggest complaint I hear from, from wives. And we're trying to kind of, dip a toe into that emotional realm and they the fear that i've heard is if i open up at home if i start to get vulnerable at home i'm afraid that it's going to come out at work and i won't be able to control it yeah yeah and you know it's, it's such a good point i mean so, so many thoughts on this um so <laughs> I think, yeah i know i know we'll need multiple volumes oh, <laughs> not <my> just <laughs> two um yeah i think that you know, look, I, I think that the truth of the matter is I have had clients where they start to open up and that is the case. They feel like they can't control it. Right. And on some level that might happen, right. Because you don't have, you may not have a lot of the tools. Or you may not think you have a lot of the tools rather to deal with the emotions. Right? And the question to really ask yourself is that, you know, when do you think you, yeah, I want to think about this. Um, the way you're acting right now, is it really working for you in the long mm. term, right? And so the fact that your wife is saying, I can't connect to you, right? And that, you know, maybe even thinking, how long can I do this for, right? I think it really asks you to kind of think about what's important to your life, what's important in your life, mm -hmm. right? Who's important to your life? What does that look like? And if, you're, if, you're, if it's so important to you to keep your wife in your life, you might have to start changing things. Right. You might have to act a little bit differently because what you're doing right now isn't working in the long term. Right. And I think the big part of that is being vulnerable with your wife. Right. Being vulnerable, showing those emotions. It might come out sometimes at work, but those those experiences are usually few and far between and usually only a little bit in the beginning. Um, I, and I'm not going to say most clients get that. 
right? So I also want to put that out there. Most clients don't even get that from me. Yeah. Um, oh, so, so can I share a, a great firefighter metaphor with you? You'll, yeah, go you'll, for it. You'll love this. Um, so this actually came out of the self-compassion work from Kristen Neff. Mm -hmm. And um, she talks about this notion of backdraft where you know when a house is on fire the firemen volunteer or otherwise don't just come rushing into the house that's on fire because when you walk into a room with the house on fire the fire sucks up all the oxygen in the room you open the door and what do you get the combustion it actually goes right over the top of your head right you get combustion you get fire rushing out at you which could be life-threatening Right. So what do firefighters do instead? They go up to the roof and they start poking holes in the roof to mm -hmm. allow oxygen into the house. Mm -hmm. So then once oxygen is in, you can go in and go safely into each of the rooms. And the idea being that with emotion, we can do the same thing that you can, once there's oxygen in there, once there's light or attention there, that you can safely go into each of the rooms. And if it's too much for you, if it's overwhelming, just slowly close the door and back out. And you'll I be okay. I love that metaphor. That's great. That's great for multiple reasons, right? Also, I just—I mean, I'm biased towards it to begin yeah. with. But um, no, but I—I I, I thought I love you would that dig metaphor. that the most. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's such a great metaphor because I think that you're right. I think a lot of times when people do find it overwhelming, it's because they're trying to do too much too quickly, right? And that's not the goal, right? For me, and and I just knowing a little bit already, I'm sure we share the same philosophy on this: is that mm -hmm. therapy, right? for me is for how to enhance the client's life, right? And so if breaking down at work probably is not enhancing your client's life, right? That's just right. my guess. Um, yep. And so how do you go ahead and work with that, right? So we wanna help you reach your goals. The very first thing I ask my clients when they come in is what do you want out of therapy? Cause this isn't for me, right? Therapy isn't for me, I'm on the other side of the seat, right? Um, this is about helping you. I will argue that I certainly get a benefit after every single client I see. Right. Um, and What's the altruism? <laughs> argument. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The lack Is thereof, it really altruistic? Right. Right. <laughs> I don't care. It helps both. That's right. There's a, a good synthesis by uh, uh, Baumeister and Bushman who say that you know it doesn't matter if it, if it helps if, if it's truly altruistic. Isn't it great that we live in this? Uh, we're built evolutionarily speaking in a way that uh, we can feel goodness and from altruism, right, or, or just doing good things, right? Yeah, Baumeister is one of my heroes. Yeah, he's awesome. I can't believe what he does. Jeez. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think try the the clinician there and is trying to help you moderate and modulate the emotions, right? Mm -hmm. We want you to succeed, right? And we want you want to succeed too, right? And so trying to rush into a burning building isn't really probably very helpful at that point, right? Um, so I think with that, but you could rush into a burning building when you have the tools and the knowledge to do so. Right, right. Not in the beginning. Right. right. Not in the beginning. Yeah. So I, I'll I use any, that metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking actually how there are times you'd rush into the burning building if there are kids inside. Right. Yeah. At that point, you kind of all bets are off and you, you rush in. Right. Um, you know, you you don't care that you just let some you just stay low to the ground. Right. Yeah. Um, and so even then, right, you might be and you might have to get the kids. So even then, actually, it's a great example of the metaphor is that you can still do more than you think you can not always recommended to do that, right? Mm -hmm. But you can still do more than you think you can. Right? Well, but I, I think the point of my bringing up that example is I think that we fear emotion. And part of the reason I think we fear emotion is that we hate to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And I think most of us have had some experience of our emotions betraying us. 
mm-hmm. like where we broke down and cried in front of a group of people, or you know, we got so angry that we did something we're really ashamed of, or we had a panic attack in public. I mean, those are examples to me of our emotions, quote unquote, betraying us. And I think once you have an experience like that, you're like, fuck that, I'm not going back there. Yeah. I never want to experience that again. I'm gonna I'm gonna rip those emotions out and leave them in the gutter. Yeah. So, but so you it's can't funny. do that. Right, because how do you get through like how do you have healthy relationships? Yeah. Right. And so I, I was thinking about how this relates to vulnerability, right? And so, um, you know, your wife is asking you to be more vulnerable, right? You know, I think it's so important to be vulnerable and to communicate a certain way. And I think they're probably, to go ahead and say again, what we said in the first part of the show is, you know, communicating, I'm feeling hurt right now. I want to work through this with you, right? And I'm feeling really hurt from what you, by what you said, right? Can we work this out? And trying to communicate that, right? Trying to communicate any other emotions you're feeling, right? I'm feeling embarrassed even by what you're saying, anxious, right? At the, th- at the thought of losing you. And I think it's so important to be vulnerable. And, right, I think it's also important that it, for us to recognize that it may not always work. We may not always get what we want, but just because it doesn't, it doesn't work every single time doesn't mean we stop it. Anger doesn't right. work every single time either, right? It doesn't mean we stop it, right? Um, you know, there's a great study that was done over in a Romanian prison, actually. Um, and it looked at, you know, can you teach a service training, right? So, you know, pretty much a, a if-then statement. So, or when-then statement. When you do X, I feel this way. I would prefer you not do that. Right? Mm-hmm. Trying to teach that basic two-sentence, uh, those two sentences. Non-violent to, communication. Yeah, yeah, right. And to, to people who have a history of violent behavior. Yeah. Right? And what they found by, they measured in three different ways, right? There was kind of a inter-rater component where uh, the staff just wanted to look to see, kind of rate um, subjectively, I guess, you know, did people, uh, were they less aggressive? Did they, did, they, did they notice a difference in their behavior? They looked at number of aggressive incidents, right? Um, with other, with the guards as well as other inmates. And I believe there was also a self-report component to it. Um, but what they found was that that worked teaching aggressive people or people with a history of aggression and violence actually were able to learn how to do that, right? And Mm. so what it means is that we could all do that, but I think part of the reason why that worked so well is because they they were all clearly coming from the standpoint of what the other person was coming from. They understood, oh, they're saying this to me right now. That means he's not trying to go ahead and make this into something, right? So it goes back to, getting rid of maybe that hostile attribution bias, right? It yeah. goes back to saying, to recognizing where that person is coming from saying, you know what, maybe my expectation of this person is wrong. Maybe they didn't push me on purpose. Maybe they mm-hmm. actually just fell into me. And the fact- that Or maybe someone else pushed them into me. Yeah, right, that's probably more likely, right? Yeah. Um, and so the fact that they're using those two sentences, right, of course we can use it, right? Of course we can go ahead and use those sentences as well. And the fact that it's again effective in a prison right? I think speaks volumes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of the importance of mindset too, because I run into that. I mean, one of the things I start off with also is the, you know, kind of a lecture about fixed versus growth mindset, because Mm -hmm. I get so many men coming in that if they're not in denial about a problem that they're having, they Mm -hmm. don't believe they can change it. So it's, you know, the denial mindset of love me as I am, like, I'm fine. Like, there's no problem here. Or it's a fixed mindset of, I, I can't do anything about this. Yeah. Yeah. I can't change. 
Right. And so, and if you believe you can't change, guess what? You yeah, don't change. Right. And so I, I think it's a really important step to start at to teach that idea of the growth mindset and just go through our days with curiosity and look, because these mindsets are context specific. So you might think you can learn communication skills at work, but not at home. Right. You might think that you can manage your anger at work, but not at home. Right. And so you gotta go through your day and look with curiosity and say, okay, where do I have a fixed mindset? Where do I have a growth mindset? The growth mindset being, you know, belief that you can change or learn and grow through perseverance and effort. Right, right. Yeah, and I think you, I think everyone has the opportunity and the ability to grow, right? And this yeah. actually relates so nicely to the research or motivational interviewing. It shows that one of the biggest factors in terms of people actually changing is people believing that they can change. Exactly. Well, and the therapist believing it too, that they've got mm -hmm. the confidence yeah. and the fact that they can help this client. That's the biggest, you know, I, I, in research I've seen in the past, the biggest determinant of the success of a therapeutic relationship is does the therapist believe in themselves that they can help this individual, their confidence level. Right, right. And, and truthfully, I 100% I right, believe that everybody can change, right? Yep. I do. I think it just takes changing the environment. I think it takes the person wanting to change. And I think it maybe takes finding the right fit with a therapist. But I believe that everyone can change. Yeah. And, and if they couldn't. A, that's a big piece too, fit with therapists. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And look, if people couldn't change, then we'd both be out of jobs right now. You know, right. <laughs> so the fact that people can change, right, is what's keeping people, like clinicians in business, right. Yeah. And so I think that just goes to speak to say, why couldn't you change, right? You, we're not that special to think that we also couldn't change. Right. Right. No, I I agree. And okay, so we've been talking for an hour and a half, and I really appreciate your time and. In wrapping up, like, what's your best tool for the, either the positive side or the negative side? I'll give you your choice. How about, can I say one of both? How about that? Okay, that'd be great. All Even right, better. Cool. All right. Um, I think one thing you could do to prevent a lot of the anger episodes is setting a schedule beforehand, right? So set a schedule the night before, right? I'm thinking right now, given everything with COVID going okay, on, okay. right? Setting a schedule for the, night for the night before for the following day, right? And I think it's very important to put something on that schedule. You have something to look forward to, right? Um, and that also may mean changing things up a little bit, right? I know a lot of therapists are trying to tell uh, clients to go ahead on the same thing every single day, but I know that that can sometimes be boring for people. So you know what? Like maybe on Tuesday, you, you speak to one of your friends, right? But on Wednesday, you're going ahead and you're really looking forward to that half a tub of ice cream, right? Uh, which, I <laughs> ate, which I ate last night. So, <laughs> um, and I might be finishing on the tub tonight. Um, right, the half rather. Um, but I think it's important to change it up so it's not so routine, right? And you have, a, you have a, a schedule for yourself that you can follow, but at the same time, it's something different each day, right? Yeah. Um, and and with, along with that too, is try and separate your, your living space, right? to this side or this portion is the relaxation component uh, space. This here is the workspace. This here is for, um, you know, spending time with others, right? I think doing that and communicating that is so important, right? And then the positive side is, you know, this I guess relates a little bit to stoicism, but I'm a big fan of building self-efficacy and that people are really are much stronger than they realize they are, right? Um, and uh, so my brother's in the Navy, and uh, I remember reading one of the stoicism uh, passages was actually from someone in the Navy. And 
you know, the, the, the stoic uh, philosopher had interviewed someone from the Navy, rather. And uh, the guy had said that he tries to push himself to the limit every single day, right? But he mm -hmm. feels so empowered, right, after that, right? And I think that's so important. Do something for yourself every single day, right? And it doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to really push yourself to the limit every single day, right? But do something, like, surprise yourself, right? Learn, you are much stronger than you realize, right? You can do so much more, right, than you realize you can. And so try and tap into that. But you only ever realize you could tap into it once you push yourself, right? And so I really think that's important to put in your schedule. Yeah, I think the daily routine, it's one of the things I've been talking with clients about the past few weeks. Um, mm -hmm. Just get up at the same time every day, just like you were yeah. going to work, at least Monday through Friday. Um, you know, get up, have breakfast, have your coffee, do some physical activity. If you don't yeah. want to do it in the morning, do it in the afternoon, but you got to get moving somehow, whether it's push-ups, planks, sit-ups, right. uh, resistance bands. You can check out videos on YouTube and Instagram, and there's all sorts of ideas out there, yoga. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've got to stay physically active. And then I think learning right now is a really big deal. So I've been telling clients, you know, let's brainstorm some things that you want to learn. I don't care what they are, but if you're curious about them, let's go after them. Because I think I'm looking for everything and anything that we can do right now to give us those little positive emotional boosts. You know, whether it's practicing gratitude or exercise or calling old friends on FaceTime, anything that we can do, we've got to be mindful of keeping our mood up. Yeah. And so even, you know, I've been, I did this podcast on hope based on Rick Snyder's um, research yeah. and, you know, added, you know, kind of a values component. So it went values, goals, pathway, agency. And, you know, I, I think the more tools we have to keep our mood up, the better off we're going to be because we're going to be in this for a bit. Yeah, right. I think we have to buckle down a little bit. And the more we can kind of get into that, that routine of setting the schedule and waking up at the same time, exercising and doing something you look forward to each day, building that self-efficacy, I think the better off we'll be. Yep. It's funny. I had a client recently, I think today that, you know, is depressive and mm. he said to me, he was talking about something he wanted to do and he said, yeah, it's too bad. I don't have the time. And I was just like, uh, dude, <laughs> I call bullshit. <laughs> like, I don't ever want to hear that during right. a quarantine. Um, right, right. That is absolutely false. And, yeah. and so again, back to the idea of watch the narrative, watch the story, watch what you're telling yourself. Yeah. Um, so you said you had two tools. Do we cover both or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to combine them a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and so I'll, I'll throw in one for the negative side. Um, I think one of the greatest tools that I know of comes from Fred Luskin, who was the director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project. And 15 years ago, I didn't even realize there was a Stanford Forgiveness Project. And, you know, we won't hold it against him that he you know, works at Stanford. We'll let that slide. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he has the book called Forgive for Good, which is outstanding. And he basically went back and reconceptualized forgiveness, broke it down into steps that we can go through and came up with the, the roadblocks that people run into in forgiving. And, you know, some of the, I, I'll just skim through this really quickly, but, um, you know, there's a mini course on forgiveness on my, on my website, but there is, so we forgive not because we approve of what was done to us. We forgive solely as a way to let go of our old stale anger. So forgiveness doesn't mean I approve of what happened. That's a big one because that's yeah. where we get stuck on it. Um, forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget what happened. It just means you forgive. So it's forgive. You don't have to forget. 
um, because we don't want to put ourselves out there to be abused over and over again by well, domestic abuse people, for instance. Um, right. And you know, some of the places that we get stuck, um, we get we confuse an unforgivable offense with an unwillingness to forgive. So that wording confused me for a while. So let me break that down. It's basically there are some really really shitty things that happen in life that we say that's just not forgivable. Rape, murder come to mind. Um, so we say to ourselves, I can't forgive that. And that's not true. We can forgive it. We're just not willing to forgive it. Now, if it, if it happened recently and you're not willing to forgive it, fine. Like give yourself time. It might take three months, six months, a year. I don't know. I, I can't really put a time frame on that. However, you can forgive anything. The, the, the research that Fred did was he went to Ireland and worked with parents who had lost their children to bombers in Ireland. And he went to the inner city here in the US and worked with parents who had lost their children to gangland violence. And he got the parents to forgive the murderers of their children. And the list of health benefits as a result is mind boggling. It's yeah. less depression, less anger, less anxiety, less stress, um, more frequent positive emotions. You, you become a more forgiving person in the moment. So shit that bothered you on the day to day just kind of rolls off your back more easily now. So if people can forgive the murderers of their children, most of us can forgive lesser stuff in my life or in our lives. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I worked with a girl who, you know, she was a beautiful 17 year old girl. And I gave a talk on this uh, after actually a murder that had happened in our society, in our community. And afterwards she said, you know, I've been angry at my mom for years because she forced me into prostitution at the age of 14. And I'm going to work on forgiving her for that. Wow. And it's like, holy shit. Like if she can do that, like I don't have anything that compares to that. So there's layers of forgiveness too, to be aware of. So one is um, forgiving others. That's pretty obvious. And when you start this, it's all mental. You don't go face to face to people. You do it all in your head. It's just a mental exercise. And I, I do it when I go to bed at night. So I put my head on the pillow and when I first started doing it, honestly, I had kind of a long list. You know, I, was, I had to go back to my childhood. And, you know, I, I forgive my mom for that. I forgive my dad for that, you know. But it's, it all happens at the speed of thought. So it really doesn't take that long. But as you practice it, the list gets shorter and shorter because the lesser stuff kind of falls off the list. You're like, eh, yeah, I'm pretty good with that. I'm not that angry about that anymore. I don't have a grudge there. Um, and so that's helpful. There's allowing others to forgive you, which takes practice. There is forgiving yourself, which is a bitch. That one's tough. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think we really have to practice that. That's self-compassion. It's self-forgiveness. And that one's hard. But you get better at these things with practice. It's like the new skill of riding a bike. When you first tried riding a bike, it felt awkward. So do these skills. Keep practicing them. The other one that's kind of interesting to me is forgiveness of God. And I remember I went on a radio show years ago, and I, I said this, and I thought, oh, man, I'm going to get crucified pun intended. Yeah, um, I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> and um, can I laugh about that or does that make me bad? I don't know. Um, I think it's funny though. <laughs> so, but I, I mean, I remember I was a school psychologist early on in my career and I had a teacher call me about uh, a gate student. So a, a young girl with, you know, IQ in the 99th percentile. And she said, would you see this young girl? She was fifth grade. And she said, she just lost a baby niece and she's been crying for three days straight. And I was like, and on the phone, I said, yeah, sure. When I hung up the phone, I was like, 
holy shit, like, what do you say to someone who's just lost a six month old? Like, I don't know what the fuck to say. Yeah. And I was a little bit, I was scared, right? Like, I, what do you say? I, I had no clue. But anyway, she came in and she starts telling me that, you know, she's close friends with her cousins and they live a mile away. And her aunt had a baby six months ago and the baby died of sudden infant death syndrome, mm. SIDS. And there's nothing you can do about that. Like, there's no one to blame for that. But anyway, she started crying and, and you know, we were talking a little bit more and I said, it, it seems to me like you're, you're angry. And she looked at me kind of <laughs> puzzled. I said, it seems like you're angry at God. And she, and I kind of had asked about her beliefs in God prior to that. And, and she said, well, I, I couldn't do that. That would be a sin. And I said, hmm, yeah, I, at one level, I get that. I mean, I, I understand the thought. And, you know, I, I said, to the extent that you believe God had some hand in creating you, whether it's, you know, evolution or intelligent design or creationism, he also created your emotions and your brain. And to me, he's all knowing and he's loving and he's forgiving. So he knows that you're angry at him. He's already forgiven you for that anger. And that anger to him is like a drop of rain in a rainstorm. It is no big deal. And he understands. So, you know, I just want to give you permission to be angry at God because that makes complete sense to me on an emotional level. And so she, you know, we kept talking and she kind of dried her eyes and went back to class. And I got a phone call the next day from her mom. And she said, you know, is this a psychologist that, that spoke to my daughter? And I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get in public. I'm going to get in trouble for talking about God and the public school system. Here it comes. And she said, that's my negativity bias. And she said, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to say thank you because my daughter came out of her room for the first time in days and engaged with the family again. And that's a really huge step. So I don't know what you said, but it was super helpful. And it, it, that moment made me realize that there are things that happen in life that we have no control over. There's no humans to blame. Coronavirus. Um, earthquakes, hurricanes, sudden infant death syndrome, cancer, you name it. No one is to blame for that stuff, but our emotional mind still needs someone to blame, I would argue. We still get enraged, indignant. And I think that most people's mind goes to some higher power and says, how could you let this happen? And to me, that makes absolute sense. But until we are aware of it and realize it and talk about it and allow for it, it continues to eat us up. So yeah. I, I think also you got you to gotta look at forgiving your higher power, however you want to phrase that, and allow your higher power to forgive you. Because there's like 85 to 90% of the people in the U.S. that believe in a higher power. And I, I think we got to work with that psychologically. Um, interestingly, I did these two kind of mini courses for Simple Habit. Um, so they're like seven courses, about 10 minutes each, and they each kind of include this little meditation. One was on anger management, one was on forgiveness. And those bastards removed one of my classes on forgiveness, the one about forgiving God. Mm. And, and I phrased it, they said, well, can you phrase it as higher power? I was like, yeah, sure, I don't, I don't care. So I did that, and then they removed that class, so now I'm working on forgiving them. <laughs> I love how you tie it all together. That's great. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring it home with that. <laughs> well, Tom, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I can't, I mean, I'm really grateful for your time. This was, I think, a really, really necessary conversation for a lot of men out there. And I, I can't express my gratitude enough. Oh, I, I love being on here. I, I love what you're doing. I think this is awesome work that you've done and that you're continuing to do. 
Um, and I want you to know that goes appreciated. So thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for being here. And, you know, let's, uh, let's stay in touch and continue the friendship. Yeah. And, you know, let's do this again down the road. Oh, I would love that. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, that is it for the latest emergency episode of